Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. The human adventure is just beginning. William Shatner, take us out, is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. you just heard was Orson Welles narrating the classic trailer for Star Trek and later in the show will be visited by that other screen legend in question William Shatner alias Captain Kirk of the Starship Enterprise along with what he's been up to lately something to do with beam me up across the country coming up and more about that Chinese balloon gate and those balloonatics over at the Pentagon who have since ordered a massive military attack on that meteorological tracker that strayed off its course, as apparently quite a few have done so in the past without hysterical alarm, encircling with military fighter jets and blowing up the blip with a missile over South Carolina's Atlantic shore to the tune of half a million dollars. And here to weigh in on all of that is Pacifica host, deep dive political analyst, and contributor to this show, along with RT's legal analyst, outspoken news decoder, bluesgrass guitarist, and humorist Lionel, likewise weighing in. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. And I just thought to myself, Hmm. People think that they're being told the truth by the... When I say they're lying to you about everything, people tell me I'm out of my mind. I think, yeah, yeah, you know, people are starting to look at the system and look at the ruling class and, and realizing something. They don't have our best interest at hand. I don't understand people. After all that goes on, say to me, well, Garland, what, do you, you really think they're lying to you? And I'm like, well, did they lie to you about weapons of mass destruction? Yeah. Did they lie to us about Vietnam? Yeah. Did they lie to us about Afghanistan? Yeah. What have they told us the truth about ever? How can you possibly believe somebody that lies to you about everything? This is simple. If they tell you something, it's a lie. Or I'm going to touch on one thing. Now, this is CNN politics, the latest on the suspected Chinese spy balloon. So there's a balloon, a balloon floating over Montana. Let me read this. Chinese authorities said Friday that a suspected Beijing-operated spy balloon spotted hovering over sensitive U.S. airspace is a civilian airship intended on scientific research. Let me just you make logical sense for one second. I turn on the news today, and around my office, there's all of these TVs, all these different, whatchamacallits, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, I look at every one of them, and they're showing a stinking balloon. And they're saying, a Chinese balloon! No! They're spying on us. They're as if, as if the Chinese and the Americans and the Russians and lots of other countries do not have satellites that can literally read a license plate. You really think... They need a balloon with the amount of these days with the what countries have the electronic technology that countries have for snooping. You really think they need a balloon. You got to be an idiot to think that the Chinese would float a balloon over here because let's face it. Who'd see that? Who'd ever suspect that a big, gigantic white balloon? No, sir. The Chinese are sitting there saying, you know. 
How can we sneak this surveillance technology over the United States? I don't know. We got to do it in a way that they won't figure it out. And one guy in the back of the room says, I got an idea, sir. What? A balloon the size of 10 Mack trucks will float it over Billings, Montana. The Americans will never see it then. They'll never be suspicious. It won't cause any problems. Nobody will see a gigantic balloon floating over Billings, Montana. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It, you'd have to be an idiot to believe that the Chinese would use a balloon to spy on us in 2023 when they got actual satellites. So what's going on? This is weapons of mass destruction. This is Russia Gate. This is all the balloon. This is um, Saddam Hussein's going to get you. Al Qaeda is going to get you. Ooh, watch out for ISIS. They're coming next. They always got a boogeyman, and now it's China. So a stinking weather balloon. I guess the Chinese. What they want is if they just get our barometric pressure, we're done. I got a better idea. The Chinese ain't our enemies. My enemies are on Wall Street. My enemies are the people that are robbing us blind. They're stealing right out of our pockets. They are price gouging us. They are turning the prices up. And when people say, how come things are so high? You know why things are so high? Because they can get it. Because they have now an excuse for raising prices, and they can get it. Come on. You think eggs just happen to go up? What happened to the chickens? Didn't no chickens disappear? uh, Friday, there's a million chickens. Saturday morning, there's still a million chickens, and the price of eggs goes up four times. Why do you think that is? It's called price gouging, because they can get it. That's what's going on. And if you think the Chinese are doing the price gouging, maybe the Russians. I got it. It's the Iranians. They're the ones with the stinking chickens and eggs. No, you're being took. And now, to for it is an insult to my intelligence to turn on the TV and see somebody pointing to a stinking weather balloon and telling me I'm supposed to poop my pants in fear, hide in the basement because there's a balloon floating over Billings, Montana, as if the Chinese don't have any better technology than to use a giant balloon. How ludicrous. All right. Thanks a lot. Peace. I'm out. American mainstream corporate media actually reacting in a way that is roughly commensurate with the situation that is going on. Normally it's, ah, what are you going to do? And I must say something, because I'm a cultural scholar, when it comes to balloons, that word triggers something. Whenever we see something fly across the sky at hypersonic rates and make right turns, we don't call it a UFO. We call it a weather balloon. These weather balloons are all over the place, or swamp gas. Now, here is the question. Does anybody understand what this means when you have a balloon fly over a sovereign country? May I also ask the question, if instead of China, we replace the country with another name, do you think the reaction might be a little different? It's incredible. Let me tell you, the use of the word balloon is strategic. Does that, can you imagine being attacked by a balloon? Gets it apart. I, I, I know I'm making too much out of this, but I know how people work. I've devoted my life to it. It dulls any kind of anticipatory or reaction for, re, uh, formation to it. There's no patellar. Wait a minute. When you hear missile, rocket, plane, uh, you know, then you 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 react. But the part of your brain which normally turns on that says, "I think I better investigate this more," does not activate when you say balloon. It sounds innocuous. It sounds anodyne, saccharine. So what? It's a mistake. And 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 oh, and not only that, it's not a surveillance balloon. It's a weather balloon. You know, weather, climate change, good rain, innocuous. We made a mistake. And here's the best part. China says, can we have our balloon back? And do you mean to tell me it can't be intercepted? Thank you, Lionel and Garland Nixon. And coming up next, William Shatner, alias Captain Kirk of the Starship Enterprise, joins us on the show to talk about his upcoming tour around the country, revisiting Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, 
and taking audience questions, billed as William Shatner Live, Beam Me Up. The veteran big and small screen acting legend, filmmaker, and recording artist, whose career has spanned seven decades, reflects during this conversation about the galaxies, his lifelong William Shatner versus Captain Kirk identity crisis, strange questions, and the mystery of that Chinese balloon. The human adventure is just beginning. William Shatner, take us out, is Captain James T. Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is Mr. Spock. DeForest Kelly is Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. James Doohan is Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. George Takei is Lieutenant Commander Sulu. Major Barrett is Dr. Christine Chappell. Walter Koenig is Lieutenant Pavel Chekhov. Michelle Nichols is Lieutenant Commander Uhura. Stephen Collins is Commander Willard Decker. Persis Kambata is Lieutenant Ilya. William Shatner, and welcome to our show. Well, I'm I'm pleased to be with you. Uh, I'm uh, I'm a great fan of public radio, and uh, I listen to it all the time. Great. Okay. What can audiences anticipate with your upcoming tour, and any new and different surprises in store? <laughs> well, every word out of my mouth is a surprise to me. <laughs> and uh, um, so I'm touring. Uh, Four cities this coming week, week starting in a couple of days, uh, and I'll be in Charleston, West Virginia, and at the MBC Theater in Fort Wayne, and the Count Basie in Red Bank, and the uh, Bergen uh, 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 Theater in Englewood uh, in the next four or five days, just prior to uh, Super Bowl. So I'm coming to those theaters, and... Um, and I will uh, bring a, a movie called The Wrath of Khan, one of the most popular uh, movies that I was in, uh, Star Trek. And we'll play that with refurbished sound and refurbished uh, picture, you know, and it sort of looks great and sounds great. And then, lo and behold, I come out after the movie. So the movie is played, and then this actor who was in the movie comes out. It's a little bit embarrassing because the movie is several years old and uh, and so i'm older than i was when i was in the film so sometimes they look around for where's the actor who was in the film but we slowly get over that usually and uh, i'm able to make people laugh and cry for about an hour an hour and a half so you come to the theater you see a terrific movie and then you have me in front of you answering all your questions and uh, and telling stories for uh, an hour hour and 15 minutes, something like that. And it's a great evening in the theater. Yeah. And would you conceive the idealized future world you inhabited on the show back then in any way different if it were now in terms of the problematic world we find ourselves in today? (laughs) (laughs) The problematic world. Well, it isn't a problematic world. The world is definitely there. I mean, uh, you know, you read the Many of these philosophers who don't believe in material, in material, but uh, in my opinion, it's there. This is just my opinion, and uh, the mysteries of um, how that uh, galaxy uh, 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 light can reach our retina, thirteen point eight billion light years away, and that's just on the Hubble, not on the web, uh, is a mystery to me. And that's one of the things I keep asking 
uh, scientists, uh, uh, space-time, and, and, and is a photon uh, uh, a particle or is it a wave? I mean, the, the questions that science has opened up, the more answers we seem to get, the more questions we have, and that's part of what we, we would talk about in the theater that evening uh, when I'm in front of you uh, at any one of these theaters I'm coming to. And regarding the Q&A with the audience on your tour, what's the strangest audience question you've ever been asked? Prairie, <laughs> the strangest question I've ever been asked. What is the strangest question you've ever been asked? Well, I'm usually the one asking the questions. You're usually the one? Yeah, but, but that's what I'm telling you. What is the strangest question? That's the strangest question. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that because it's a strange question. Oh, okay. Now, about that Chinese balloon that was floating out there, what do you think you would have done about it if sighted from the Starship Enterprise back then? Well, we would have had advanced technology, but the advanced technology that we in America have, I'm sure was listening in to all those things, modulated what they could send out, <clears throat> We were learning more about them than they were learning about us. That's the reality of, of, of American science. It's not the hysteria of we should have shot it down and we couldn't shoot it down until we did shoot it down. I mean, the bizarre things that people are saying. We, shoot it down, we shot it down when we wanted to shoot it down and didn't for reasons that we don't even, that we, the American public, don't know yet. But it'll be, it'll, it will come about that we were using them, not them using us. And would you say Star Trek and inhabiting Captain Kirk influenced or changed your life in any way? Well, I absolutely did. I was, uh, I'd been an actor in movies and theater and even radio uh, uh, prior to Star Trek, but certainly Star Trek pushed me in the direction of celebrity and changed my life and my career and what I would have done, what I might have done. Uh, is not what happened after I was in Star Trek. And I'm eternally grateful for it. And when William Shatner looks in the mirror, what does he see? He sees... He sees himself when he was 25, and, and then I put my glasses on. And what about when Captain Kirk looks in the mirror? What does he see? Well, Captain Kirk looks in the mirror of film that was made so many years ago, and he lives eternally at that age, uh, which is uh, somewhat of a consternation to me when people uh, are, are introduced and they look for me. Now, where's, where's Shatner? I'm standing in front of him. Hey, it's me, you know, 50 years later. And why of your many films did you choose to present a screening on your tour of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan? Any last word about William Shatner Live, Beam Me Up? Well, I, 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 the word last, the, the phrase last word uh, rings a little too hard in my, in my brain. Ah. Last word is like, okay, better go to the theater because this is the last word. <laughs> <laughs> I guess last is not final, is it? No. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Prairie. Pleasure to talk to you. And information about the William Shatner Live Be Me Up tour is online at williamshatnertour.com. Mm -hmm.
Israel. And right now you're listening to Arts Express. And I want to send a shout out to all you guys doing time and anybody that's in the pen. Hey, God bless you guys. Don't forget, man. You know, just keep stepping. When I got out of prison, I, I had to, like, change my attitude. I had to, like, do whatever I could to help other people. So when I got out, I made it my my life. I dedicate my life to helping other people. And I have to say that everything good that has happened to me has happened as a direct result of helping someone else. And that's the way I live my life. I think that's the fascination because a lot of people still perceive me as this badass, mean guy that wouldn't cross the street to save a puppy. Awesome. on Arts Express. As a kid, I was very eager. I was very active. I loved to dance. But those things about me started to change. Even though I knew something was wrong, I never imagined it would be this. There are more cases than HIV and breast cancer combined. You could do all the right things and get bit by a tech change your world forever. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Before there was COVID, before there was swine flu, there was a then mysterious sickness called Lyme disease. When Lyme disease was first identified in 1975, little did the medical community suspect that soon Lyme disease would become the center of one of the most controversial, divisive, and vicious medical debates in medicine. A new film called The Quiet Epidemic explores that controversy by focusing in on one young girl from Brooklyn and a doctor who both refused to abide by the conventional medical wisdom. I'm very happy to be talking with the directors of The Quiet Epidemic, Lindsay Keyes and Winslow Crane Murdoch. Hi, Lindsay, and hi, Winslow. So let's just start with the basic. What causes Lyme disease? So Lyme disease is caused by a spiral-shaped bacterium named Borrelia burgdorferi, and it's a spirochete. So the spirochete is what also causes syphilis. Syphilis and Lyme disease are sort of cousins. Uh, while they're different bacteria, they, they act in similar ways. So the spirochete can drill into organs. It can enter the brain if left untreated, the nervous system. It can go virtually anywhere in the body, which also makes it very hard to treat and test for. Spirochetes come from tick bites. Um, you know, they can be in the springtime, they can be as small as a poppy seed. Towards the end of the film, there was a study that came out, I believe it was out of Columbia University, that showed that 60% of the ticks in the Hudson Valley and into Connecticut we're carrying Lyme disease. Your chances of getting Lyme when being bit by a tick um, are unfortunately getting higher. Well, I, I knew ticks traveled on deer, but you show them at the beginning of your film, The Quiet Epidemic, that they're being picked off from birds, those cute little goldfinches. Do other animals carry these ticks? So it's not just deer. I think calling them deer ticks is very misleading. Like you said, birds can carry and anything that has blood, really. What would make me think that I might have Lyme disease? Well, you know, I think if you were lucky, you would present with the, with the traditional symptoms. And so that would be, a lot of people call it the summer flu. So, you know, in the summertime, you're not, you're not normally going to get a flu, but you would wake up with um, joint pain, you'd be exhausted, you might have headaches. Um, and, it, and again, if you're lucky, you might have a bullseye rash. And so that's been the typical sign of Lyme disease is this perfect 
circular rash that has this red ring around it. Some people suggest that only 70% of the people get the rash. Some people suggest that only 30% of people get the rash. I think we've been taught that there's sort of very specific things to look for. Uh, and unfortunately, that's just not always the case. We sort of consider Lyme disease to have this golden period of when you want to be treating it. And that's just right after the tick bite. Um, but still, you know, what we get into in the film is that, you know, we talk about this, this subset of patients that never recover. So let's get into that. What, what exactly is the controversy about Lyme disease? Well, so Lyme disease can, can look like so many things. So syphilis was known as the great imitator, and Lyme disease has been called the new great imitator. So if left untreated, it can look like multiple sclerosis, ALS, Alzheimer's, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia. So it's really hard to pin down, uh, like Winslow said, who has Lyme disease. And, and that definitely fuels the controversy. Without an accurate test, you can't say for sure who even has it or whether the person is cured with treatment. The biggest driving force of the controversy that's been ongoing since the, the disease was discovered in 1975 is whether or not those people who remain sick are still actively infected with the bacteria. Do they require additional treatment? Are they still infected? Or is there just lingering damage in the body that was caused by the spirochete, but it has been eradicated? And so one side of the controversy, sort of the old guard, they say, you know, patients uh, do not benefit from long-term treatment, but <laughs> they don't really know what to offer as far as what to do with those people. So then there's the other side of, of this debate, which is sort of the newer guard. I mean, those doctors, some of them have seen a lot of benefit from long-term treatment and repeated treatments. So that's really the, the big divide. Do you keep treating or do you just tell people, I don't know what's going on with you? I'm sorry, you're still sick. I think the standard treatment you say in the film is uh, 28 days. And after that, most, M I won't say most MDs, but the traditional MDs will say there's no benefit of treating with antibiotics after that first 28 days. Now, the film focuses on a young Brooklyn girl, which is dear to my heart since I'm hmm. sitting here right now in Brooklyn. Uh, her name is Julia Bruzesi, and uh, you focus in on her and her family. So tell us about them. We met Julia in upstate New York at the doctor's office where, where Lindsay and I met, actually. And we started filming with her family in 2015. She came onto our radar because she was blessed by Pope Francis when he came to JFK. And, it, and her story sort of became this viral uh, media story within the tri-state area. And the doctor that we were seeing actually offered her free treatment, and she ended up in Albany, New York, trying to recover. Um, we spent six years with them as they go all over the country and, and all over the world trying to find treatment. And as Julia, you know, battles through and as Enrico sort of finds his way through this medical controversy and figures out the best ways to, to try to heal his daughter. The way you depicted the family, it really humanizes the disease. And what I really appreciate in addition is how you really followed up with the institutional aspects of the disease. Now, the medical societies and governmental agencies like the CDC responded to the disease in a, I guess I would say, a very political way, not necessarily a scientific way. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so things are pretty complicated <laughs> within the CDC around Lyme disease. A lot of Lyme disease patients and advocates are incredibly frustrated that there hasn't been more of a response over the years. A lot of the research that has been endorsed by the CDC doesn't really further the conversation. It more sustains this debate over whether or not chronic Lyme disease exists. What we would love from the CDC and, and the NIH is questions around how to help people get better. It seems like there are two parallel realities that are playing out alongside one another, and they're very hard to reconcile. Well, just to sharpen that a bit, the key here to remember is that word chronic. Nobody's debating whether Lyme disease exists or not. The question is whether after 28 days worth of antibiotics can mm -hmm. Lyme disease survive that and become a chronic disease? And the CDC says no. 
one email from the CDC that you uncovered I thought was fascinating. This battle cannot be won on a scientific front. It must be fought on a socio-political field. What did he mean by that? Yeah, that actually was not a member of the CDC, but it was on oh, an I'm email sorry. chain uh, with members of the CDC, which is how it was. You know, it was a FOIA request from uh, a previous film producer who who um, uncovered those emails. Um, you know, I think that what has happened is that the battle lines have became drawn in in the '90s, um, and the fight has been so intense that these two camps have have been formed and and i think most of the questions have been around how do we prove each other wrong rather than how do we improve the field uh-huh. and you know i think that email in particular um was the the moment when a lot of these doctors who are part of this old guard that lindsay described decided that they had to go on this sort of offensive to start really demeaning people who believed that chronic lyme disease existed and so after that, there was all of these articles that came out that, you know, are comparing people who believe in chronic Lyme disease to people who think that the earth is flat and people who th- deny the viral cause of AIDS and anti-vaxxers. And it was this real effort to throw people who believe in chronic Lyme into this camp of a whole bunch of people who are anti-science. And at one point in the film, you, you see Dr. Neil Spector in the film reading through some of these scientific articles. Um, and, you know, Neil, in our mind, is, is the epitome of what a scientist should be. I mean, he was a world-renowned cancer researcher who developed two drugs that are now in the clinic. And he lost his heart to Lyme disease and decided to transfer his research from cancer to Lyme. And, and his whole goal was, how do we bring new people into this field who are willing to ask better questions um, and who are willing to look at this um, with an open mind and take a new approach? Well, in in your film, The Quiet Epidemic, you suggest some possible contributing causes to this split in the medical community. How how does the rise of HMOs and managed care fit into all of this? So when insurance companies became for-profit, it seems to us and the evidence that we uncovered that they were considering their stakeholders more than, than patients. In the case of Lyme disease, which is in some cases, a a long-term chronic illness that requires open-ended winding treatment modalities, they can be very expensive. Lyme patients also have so many symptoms and they require so much time and attention that our current insurance model just can't support. When the HMOs started to really take over, you're not just in the office with a doctor anymore. You're in the office with the insurance companies. And and they keep tabs on everything the doctor is doing. And if a doctor is spending too much money, then those doctors could actually be called into, into question by the medical boards and face uh, legal action. The film illustrates how in the 1980s, a new bipartisan law was passed in Congress, which let universities get federal funding but the universities were allowed to keep all the profits of their research. And how did that affect the outcome of classifying Lyme disease and uh, the development of a Lyme vaccine? I think that's a huge debate. Such scientists who are part of the government or part of university systems profit off of these patents. You know, I, I think there has to be checks and balances because you can end up with pretty pretty severe conflicts of interest. And um, and so there's all of these patents on the Lyme bacteria, and then these turned into all sorts of products. And often some of the people that were promoting or doing the research around these products also had, had vested interest in the products being successful. Um, and as far as the Lyme disease vaccine, that was a big push in the 90s. Unfortunately, that vaccine was pulled from the market in 2002 um, after a whole bunch of class action lawsuits and people getting really upset about it. And so that vaccine has not been on the market for 20 years. And yet the test that we're using is still worse because of a vaccine that doesn't exist. You also showed that there have been actually in the past decade physical evidence that the spirochete survives after antibiotic treatment. If that's true, then obviously there's a physical cause for chronic Lyme disease. Has the CDC admitted any change in their treatment protocols given these new findings? These new scientific findings are almost exclusively funded by private foundations. So the federal funding that is funding the the scientists who, you know, the old guard as we call them, they, you know, the CDC refers to their work 
to set the gold standard of diagnosis and treatment. And then you have these private foundations like the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundation, the Bay Area Lyme Foundation, Global Lyme Alliance. There, there are so many foundations out there who are seeing this void of understanding. That research is not being recognized and it has not trickled down into the patient experience. And so that's incredibly frustrating because although the Lyme disease community is called anti-science, what we've discovered is that most of the Lyme community is actually very pro-science. Well, we would have to be blind to ignore the similarities between the way chronic Lyme disease has been handled by the CDC and the way COVID treatment has been prescribed by the CDC, especially the push for a vaccine without that much oversight. I'm going to ask you something that I don't know if anybody has asked you. Was Anthony Fauci involved in this controversy at all? <laughs> um, you know, not Fauci never really came up in, in any big way in the research that we did. I'm sure he knows about it. And he's been a huge part of the NIH. And the NIH has been a big part of funding Lyme disease and, and a big part of the, the pushback on, on chronic Lyme disease. So yeah, I, I don't know. But I think there are some very interesting similarities between Lyme and COVID. I mean, I think even early on, you know, the CDC's handling of COVID was, was very interesting, where they were choosing what to tell the public based on, you know, this very sort of paternalistic view of what we get to know. Um, and I think we see that trickle down in, in a whole bunch of things. I think that also, you know, that early on we were using um, antibody tests for COVID and, and there was a lot of reporting coming out showing that antibody tests, you know, are, are 50% accurate. And it really depends on your uh, individual's immune response um, as to whether they're going to test positive on an antibody test. We're still using antibody tests for Lyme disease. And then the last thing that's really interesting, of course, is the idea of long COVID. And, you know, if you look at what happened with long COVID early on, there was a lot of pushback within the medical community of people not wanting to recognize that this was a problem that had to be dealt with. I think with Lyme disease, it's been this slow trickle over many, many years that has added up to a lot of patients. And it's been very easy to dismiss and say, oh, that's just stress. Oh, that's something else. Oh, you have fibromyalgia. Oh, you have autoimmune illness instead of looking for root cause. Well, you've alluded to it during some of the interview, but the two of you have a very personal reason for making this film. So tell us about that and what your experience has been. And Yeah, so people ask often, do you remember when you were bitten? And it's just so hard to answer that question. But in 2015, I no longer had a choice. My health completely tanked. I was losing my memory. I could not find my way home from work in New York City. I felt like I was being electrocuted 24-7, just intense nerve pain, joint pain, muscle pain. I ended up having to move back home with my mom, and I, she convinced me to go see a Lyme specialist. And at the first appointment, the nurse practitioner asked me how I was going to get through this. But I said, you know, I think I want to make a documentary about Lyme disease. And she said, uh, we have another patient here who's your age, and he's a filmmaker with Lyme. Do you want me to connect the two of you? And it just wasn't even really a question. I just wrote Winslow a note that said, let's make a documentary about Lyme. <laughs> well, as, as we wrap up, what's the most important thing you've learned about chronic Lyme disease as you worked on this film? <laughs> Oh boy, that's a big question. What this taught me was just how much we can endure, um, but then also what it means to heal. What I learned most maybe was watching Julia and the grace with which she handled her own disease, the positivity with which she always showed up, not to say that she doesn't have bad days, and the strength with which the family stood up for each other. You know, I think that what really allows us to heal is having a community of people that support us. And I think that that's what's so incredible about Julia's story. So it's taught me that in order to heal, that we have to lean on each other. Um, and, and that's something that I'm, I'm very grateful to have learned. Thanks so much, Lindsay and Winslow. I've been talking with Lindsay Keyes and Winslow Crane Murdoch, co-directors of The Quiet Epidemic. You can find out information on how to see The Quiet Epidemic by going to the website thequietepidemic.com. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. I'd like to kiss you, baby, way back in the sticks. I'd like to walk you through a field of wildfire.
And we'll go out now with Bro on the Global Cultural Beat. Dispatches from war-torn Europe. Arts Express correspondent Professor Dennis Bro takes us on a political guided tour of Vienna's museums and art performances and installations in the wake of devastation precipitated by the ongoing war in Europe. Channeling Brecht, Freud, Einstein, Mozart, Wagner, and an exhibit disposing of Hitler out of the cellar and into the museum. This is Bro on the Global Cultural Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Dispatch from War-Torn Europe, a pared-down Vienna Christmas and New Year's. It's hardly the ruined, devastated post-war rubble that was the backdrop of the most famous film shot in Vienna, The Third Man, but in more subtle ways, Europe in general and Austria's capital city in particular is showing signs of deterioration. After two years of a COVID lockdown and now with the price cap on Russian oil and natural gas, which has prompted in return a cutoff of that supply from Russia, there's a general air of belt tightening and despondency, as well as an unleashing of right-wing sentiments in the wake of these twin catastrophes. The belt tightening is everywhere apparent. The museums cut back on Christmas blockbusters and instead tried to make up in ingenuity what they lack in budget. The Leopold Museum's feature, Vienna 1900, displayed works by Klimt, Schiller, and Kokoschka in an exhibition that simply looks like a regurgitation of past exhibits using the Fin de Siecle 1900 label to group them under a new heading of The Turn to Modernism. The Kunsthistorische or Art History Museum, which in the past has featured blockbusters highlighting Titian, Caravaggio, and Bruegel, this year tried, in avoiding the high price of borrowing and insuring works, to trace the history of competition in art in its Idols and Rivals exhibit, which featured an array of replicas and reproductions on a topic that might have dealt more strongly with the pressures on artists to produce saleable commodities in a capitalist art market, but which instead focused on individual rivalries. Best moment was an etching of the art historian Giorgio Vasari and Michelangelo visiting Titian's studio, at which time Michelangelo, peering over the master's shoulder, is said to have remarked that the Venetians, famous as colorists, still had not learned how to draw. The New Year's celebration was also muted as the city pre-COVID had sponsored nine stages with various kinds of music, ranging from Viennese waltzes in the city square to hip-hop to rock. But this year, cut the display down to five. A highlight of past New Year's was a broadcasting outside the world-famous Staatsoper, the National Opera House, of the New Year's Eve perennial Der Fledermaus. And the next day, on the same screen, the world-famous Vienna Philharmonic Concert. This year, the events took place but were not broadcast outside and thus remained only the province of the elite, though the concert in truncated form is broadcast on public television stations across the world. The most interesting exhibition was one of the smallest, a collection of 50 surrealist pieces, sculpture, paintings, and sketches at the Sigmund Freud Museum, which recounted the sometimes troubled relationship between Freud and the surrealist capo André Breton. Freud remained skeptical about the surrealist project, which he claimed dealt only with the manifest or overt content of the dream, whereas he was interested in the latent or hidden content. But it's easy to see that, in fact, the two benefited each other, with surrealism helping to popularize Freud's discovery of psychoanalysis and Freud's discovery of the unconscious, enlivening and invigorating the art world with a plethora of startling images. Also on hand, at a revamped version of the museum, which boasted two rooms concentrated to Freud's daughter Anna's practice in his apartment alongside his, was Freud's correspondence with Einstein on the subject of the uselessness and destruction of war in the era between the two world wars. Their warning went unheeded, neither in their time nor today, as we draw ever closer to global nuclear war. The other most interesting exhibit was at the Welt or World Museum on the subject of oceans, collections, reflections. The Welt or Ethnographic Museum featured the work of New Zealand Maori artist George Nuku. The work, in exquisite paintings and sculptures, detailed the interdependence of the Maori on the ocean, with each construction of a boat or a whale bounded by plastic bottles, indicating the way waste and the petroleum industry are devastating the livelihood and sustainability of the Maori. Elsewhere, the exhibition described how in the 18th century, New Zealand tribesmen had visited Vienna as capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and asked for aid as they were about to be invaded by the British. The emperor granted them a printing press, 
which they used to print leaflets and testimonies warning of the impinging invasion. Helpful, yes, but also a way of exonerating the empire from its colonial role in the conquest and colonization of the peoples of Eastern Europe. The Volksoper, or People's Opera, which performs light opera or operetta and musicals, featured a strikingly modern version of Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill's Three Penny Opera, with the beggars dressed in the gaudy costumes of internet influencers and the thieves arrayed in the equally outrageous apparel of digital entrepreneurs. This element of the production emphasized the continuity between scammers of different centuries. What did not work was the overwrought Don Juan in Hell, Final Death of the Lead Thief and Cutthroat Mac the Knife, which attempted to replace with smokescreens and stagecraft Brecht's more radical ending of having the injustice of the play solved by royal decree, which was designed to call attention to the falseness of Dickensian and other deus ex machina endings of numerous works, which undercut the social critique throughout those works. The trope persists today, not only in fiction, but also in the belief that billionaire philanthropy will in the end save the world, even as it adds to their own wealth. The city dotted with metros, buses, and trolleys, often voted the most livable on the planet, continues to have extraordinary public transportation and affordable housing, with the average price for a roomy one-bedroom in apartments just outside the center ring being 767 euros. 60% of its population live in subsidized housing, a tribute to the post-World War I affordable housing boom led by first socialist and then social democratic administrations. But as everywhere on the planet, there are ominous sightings of the ever-present monstrous cranes, harbingers of the coming of large condos that will force the prices up everywhere in the city. There's also a disturbing right-wing renaissance even in this most cosmopolitan of cities, the result perhaps of the support for the fascist elements in the Ukrainian government and soon to be aided by the overflow of NATO arms that, untracked in that country, are making their way across Western Europe, where a right-wing planned coup was recently thwarted in Germany and surfacing as far as Africa, with Nigeria's president announcing those arms had already reached terrorist groups in that country. The Austrian History Museum opened in 2019 and recounting Austrian events from after World War I to the present featured an exhibit titled Disposing of Hitler Out of the Cellar Into the Museum. The Austrian Criminal Code bans any material that could be used to perpetuate the aspirations of any Nazi organization. But National Socialist paraphernalia, books, swords, photos, postcards, exists everywhere and is often put up on eBay. The exhibit consists of illustrations of this memorabilia and asks visitors whether it should be preserved, sold, or destroyed. Overwhelmingly, the response, aided by the museum itself, which presented an argument for a museum being a repository of historical memory, was preserve, with no destroy and an occasional sell. The exhibit thus functioned as a part of the path on the way to normalizing this hateful junk, on the argument that it's part of our history. The same argument propounded almost always by right-wing pundits and used to attack the pulling down of slave owners' statues in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. Elsewhere, the Staatsoper's version of Wagner's The Master Singers of Nuremberg at over four and a half hours, the longest opera in the repertory, missed a chance to address the anti-Semitism and championing of the Aryan virtues, which made it not only a hit, but the only opera performed at the Beirut Wagner Festival in Hitler's darkest days of 1943 and 1944. In the work, the proud German blonde, clean-shaving novice has to outsing the hard-hearted, bearded technical master for the hand of a German maiden. The Staatsoper chose to simply recreate the work, putting its effort into painstaking reconstruction of the 17th century milieu in which the work is set, seemingly oblivious to its historical uses. The opera is a fascinating meta-meditation by Wagner on the art of composing and singing, but it cries out for a modern retelling which ironizes and criticizes its original bigotry and the uses to which it's been put. Recreating the period does not negate that history, but simply suppresses it in an era in Europe where it is more alive than ever. Finally, Vienna also has, as is popular everywhere in Europe, a new immersive experience in the center of the city titled Mythos Mozart, 3D recreations of Mozart's death, his city Vienna in 1791 at the time of his writing of the Magic Flute, and the creation of his most famous musical number, A Little Night Music. 
In general, these immersive exhibitions flood the viewer with images, but after the flood, one knows little more about Mozart and his world at the end than at the beginning. The last room is a kaleidoscope of random images assaulting the viewer on all four walls, the ceiling and the floor. A little girl, in response to this stultifying collage, herself got on all fours and raised one foot up against the wall, as though she was a dog out for a walk doing its business. That little girl is going to make an excellent critic. The beating heart of the city, though, despite the rightward tilt and the wartime austerity, is still its cafes. Café Central, a haven for writers and once the home of Freud, the novelist and journalist Joseph Roth, the subject of an exemplary new biography titled Endless Flight, the anti-war critic Karl Krauss, and the playwright and lampooner of the bourgeois Arthur Schnitzler. Café Museum, home of the 1900 artists Klimt, Schiller, and Kokoska, and Café Mozart, meeting place of composers and opera singers and perhaps of Arnold Schoenberg and Albert Berg as they created the new atonal music. These are now all packed with tourists, but still contain the memories of a time that may hopefully be revived and prevail over the war clouds that now hang so heavily over Europe. This is Bro on the Global Cultural Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.